Hello, 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 and good evening, everybody. Welcome to Creating the Conversation, Creating the Conversation podcast. Guys, I hope and I pray that you guys who are watching us now or going to watch us later on, all right, whenever that is, maybe in daytime, in the nighttime, that you will be buzzing. And I hope that you've had a brilliant week. This is one of your hosts, Imran Mohammed, of course, with my mate, Ivan Humble. Guys, I hope and I pray that you guys have been safe, you've been fine, family's been cool, everything's been all right. Today, is one of those biggies, that one. I tell you, we got an awesome guest, but I'm not going to introduce my guest straight away. Yeah, before I do that, I'm going to ask my friend and my brother, Ivan, to say hi to all of you, and maybe he wants to share something with you as well. How are you doing, Ivan, mate? What's wrong with you? Hey, what are you doing with these glasses? Yeah. I've got bit some questions down tonight, and I need to read them in my eye. <laughs> that needs a good name. I like that. Thank God. <laughs> So how's it been? How's your week been, mate? What you been up to? And I'm left hand. I'm left handed. The writing's not the best. So um, yeah, this week, yeah, it's been all right. Come out a lot. It's been all right. Into tier two. Yeah. How's how the people taking? How the people taking the tier two? The whole tier two thing with yourself in your area. It's it's the same as it was before, really. Do you know what I mean? There is, we still have a bit of a divide in our town over the masks. We have quite a big, I'd say big, but on Facebook, I'd say, do you know what I mean? But there's a lot of people still down that conspiracy rabbit hole. It's even more so now that there has been, do you know what I mean? So there's still a constant battles online between people, do you know what I mean? But they've both probably got genuine concerns again. And they're arguing who's right and wrong. Mm-hmm. They don't listen to each other. Yeah, that's typical, isn't it, mate? You know, but I'm gonna, I've got to say, yeah. I've got to say, uh, Ivan, you know, I'm really, uh, I'm really sad with you this week because uh, behind my back, Dad. yeah, behind my back, you've been up to this sort of stuff, mate. <laughs> What's going on? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, what's going on? Yeah, I did that Wednesday. No? Oh, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. What is it all about, mate? Yeah, Let's I did that. Well, yeah, I, yeah, it was just a conversation, really, um, about hateful na- narratives and stuff like that. Of course, I went on there to give a bit of balance. But it was a really good conversation, do you know what I mean? I think we all kind of agreed that it's not just hate that drives it. There is a lot of underlying factors in a lot of this and the online space is a space that's causing the division at the minute do you know what i mean yeah definitely. Uh, one of the things i think we we talked about was free speech a bit do you know what i mean and i think the people over here with the free speech argument they're confused because of the online space because they're getting our free speech mixed up with the u.s version and it's totally different over here you got to remember facebook's a u.s platform so Americans will be writing stuff that doesn't fit up in the UK, yeah. but people in the UK think it's okay because it's on Facebook. Because it's you know, on Facebook. confusion yeah, again, isn't it? <laughs> but thanks, mm-hmm. mate. You know what I mean? I hope when that comes out, when that's official on the platform, that you will share that with us as well. Guys, everybody at Creating the Conversation podcast, we have an amazing, amazing guest today, a specialist in this particular area, Mr. Sean Arbuthnot, hopefully I pronounced that correctly, Uh, a gentleman (laughs) who is a prevent coordinator for Leicestershire, uh, a gentleman who has worked in this sector for a number of years, 
Uh, but a man who has, in his career, of course, was a former police detective. He fulfilled a number of frontline specialist supervisory roles over a 12-year career in Northern Ireland and the Midlands. So because we spoke and we, talk about, we talked about youth and radicalization last week, right, what we felt was we needed someone on, on board, someone that we can put our questions to, get someone on who knows much better than those guys who are a bit of loonies there, don't really know. We just see how it is. But we want to get someone who understands the statistics, understands why this is happening, and let's keep it real. So, big up to my man, and I'm going to bring him on, Sean. How are you, man? What's happening? Good evening. Thanks very much for having me. That was quite uh, quite the introduction there. I, don't know <laughs> that. I thought we'd throw you right into the deep end. <laughs> Thanks very much. You're welcome. You're welcome. We are really, really grateful for your presence, mate. You know, to um, it was a bit of a last moment, really, because we were thinking. All right, we've, this is something that we discussed. We spoke about this very briefly. Um, I, I wonder if Sean's going to accept or not. And of course, Ivan uh, requested, and you said, "Yeah, why not?" I'll come over and a bit of a chat. Um, I've just very briefly told our guests and you know our viewers who you are. If it's okay with yourself, Sean, if you can tell us a little bit about yourself, a little bit, a bit of your background, please. All right, and that'd be really nice of you because that will have a bit of an introduction to the man yourself. Go for it, mate. No worries. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. Um, I am originally from Balamina in County Antrim, so I'm not. Uh, that Lovely. beautiful accent gives it away, mate. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, my um, my wife's originally from Northampton, so we've um, we've settled here for family oh, reasons. Uh, two wee girls, nine and five, keep me very busy. Um, but yeah, I've worked in Prevent since 2013. So I got my Masters in Conflict Resolution before joining the police for 12 years, and. Um, ended up working as a prevent officer in the police. And I'm quite fortunate really, I think, because I've worked in prevent a good few years now, but I've been able to work in a number of different areas, a number of different regions. So I've had experience of it from a, from a number of different perspectives, if that makes sense. So I was a, a, a police prevent officer in the first instance, working on cases, dealing with vulnerable people. Um, and then after I left the police, I was an independent consultant for a couple of years. So I did a lot of training. I helped a lot of institutions embed their uh, prevent duty. I worked on e-learning platforms, stuff like that. And then that led me into my current role uh, with the prevent coordinator for Leicester, Leicestershire and Rutland, which is much more of a strategic role, I guess. And um, so I have to have a broad oversight of how all of the different agencies deliver prevent within Leicestershire. But it's a it's a dream job, to be honest with you. I absolutely love it. So I'm, I'm very happy at the moment. Yeah, you may you may see it as a dream job yourself, mate. And, and, and I think in a lot of ways, having that experience and bringing that experience into the sector is hugely, hugely important. And the more diverse it is, the more, uh, you know, better of a practitioner you become. And I agree with, especially coming from Northern Ireland, with these conflicts and issues and concerns that we have and bringing that experience as well, maybe as a young man, you mm. must have had your own turmoils. Would you say that itself has helped in working in, in as a prevent officer? Yeah, it's not something I've really thought about, to be honest, but I think it probably has, you know. I think just uh, learning to live with difference and respecting other people and listening to different points of view and accepting people, you know, that was 
that was bred into me really as I was growing up. I was very fortunate with the family and everything that I had around me. Um, and so I think taking that experience with me across the water has stood me in good stead, particularly when you're dealing with, you know, controversial issues and with different communities and, and people with different points of views. Uh, I do think that having a background growing up in it, in what was really a, a, a pretty high intensity high intensity conflict for such a long time. Um, it's given me a lot of perspective, I think. Um, and yeah, it, like I said, it's not something I'd really considered before, it, it, but I'm sure it must have had an impact on how I, how I do my job now. And I, and I think, you know, what it is, I, the only reason I touch on that, because we know about the conflicts of Northern Ireland. Mm. Right, and it's been part and parcel of our British history, especially this our recent history for for a number of decades. Now, the truth of the matter is, is that individuals who are brought up in that particular conflict, they would understand, uh, in my opinion, they would un better understand how young people in certain ethnic communities go through marginalization, alienization, polarization, and feel like the other. And mm. I think someone like yourself, Sean, who being up, brought up in an environment like that, right? Maybe the presence of soldiers in your country, presence of a particular, you know, militia, uh, and then hearing and hearing about some of the conflicts that are taking place, and of course the tension, right, between different people. So, someone like you to do the work that you do. <coughs> this is why I'm putting this forward. Maybe you, I don't know if you've thought about this, but that's what I'm putting out there. That you know unconsciously probably that helps you to understand the people that you work with the communities that you work with and hopefully understand why they feel marginalized why they feel alienated and why they feel polarized would you say yeah i think you're right i think it does help me um understand where different people are coming from uh, and helps me to um sympathize with them i mean when I grew up, I obviously didn't realize how abnormal my life was because we were used to helicopters in the sky and the army on the streets. And it was only really embarrassingly when I was in my teenage years and, and went to university in Nottingham that I realized, gosh, this is what, this is what normal life is like. It's what normal life is like, yeah. But, but looking back on it, um, you know, I grew up with a, with a lot of people who maybe went down a different path, you know. Um, and uh, you know, went to school with individuals who've, who've got involved in paramilitary activity, for instance. And I often thought, well, what was it that led them to go down that path and I didn't? And I guess it, 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 it cements in my mind even more that when we're talking about even people who go on to do heinous, terrible things, you know, extremism, terrorism, whatever it may be, that at the end of the day, you know, they weren't born that way. They weren't born yet. At some point in their lives, they were just a probably a normal child at school. Um, and I just I sometimes reflect and think, you know, growing up in that environment, could that have been me? Do you know what I mean? And I think it helps me to normalize and, and humanize a lot of the individuals that we deal with in prevent. So I think when you're talking about, like I said, extremism, terrorism, it's very easy to label individuals as, you know, monsters, as 
abnormal as different to all of us, especially if they go on to commit some kind of terrorist attack. You know, um, in particular in, in the media, they're oftentimes you know, written off. But in Prevent, what we like to do is, however difficult it may be sometimes, to try and um, look for the human side of somebody and, and reach out to that, really. Um, in the hope that no one's beyond redemption, really, you know, if hate is a is a learned activity, then perhaps it can be unlearned. And and you truly can. And and I yeah. I'll, I'll I'll conclude with you on that. And I agree with you. Um, discussing this about this, you know, humanizing these individuals, and of course, um, um, our conversation is uh, connected to our last week's conversation around the youth and radicalization. And myself mm -hmm. and Ivan, we were looking at you know statistics of fifty four percent between. Uh, um, was it now last uh, 2019 April till under the age of 20? Under the age of 20, yeah. Mm. And uh, you know, 54% were under the age of 20. Now, of course, like you said, if we label them and they get labeled by being a terrorist or extremist or a radicalist or whatever it is, then that stigma will stay with that young person for life. So, what I'm, asked, what I'm saying is that because a man like yourself who's who, like you give an example of some of the individuals who went down a slightly different path as you and by making it personal to yourself i think that gives a man like yourself the job that you do more responsibility and more reflection okay, one minute i'm going to be careful before we label any individual would, would you agree with that yeah absolutely the last thing we want to do is stigmatize anybody or you know give them a label that they'll have to carry around for the rest of their lives. So you're right in what you say in that the majority of people referred to prevent, according to the latest statistics, were males under the age of 20, really. Um, and I guess that's because that particular cohort is, is most likely, I suppose, to come under the attention of safeguarding professionals who work in education, for instance, and social services, and <laughs> safeguarding boards and, and things like that, hence probably why they're um, more likely to be referred because warning signs and vulnerabilities are more likely to be spotted. Um, but the whole point of the work that we do with those individuals is to try and provide some kind of intervention and support in order to stop them from going down a dark path in the first place, to avoid them becoming stigmatized, to avoid them attaching a label to themselves before they go on to make a mistake that may well live with them forever, that may well end up with people being harmed or themselves being harmed or them ending up in prison, etc. So, you know, I guess people can, can debate as to whether prevent stigmatizes those individuals by getting involved in the first instance but in actual fact what we're trying to do is stop them from being stigmatized further down the line if that makes sense you know oh sean right this isn't really a prevent question but just off an off notice do you know what i mean uh you you know the name harry vaughan you might have name? to remind me no he was a he was a young lad who got um, charged with fourteen ter terrorism offences and two child abuse image offences. He got a two year suspended sentence. Okay. Yes. Yeah, yeah. 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 Can you remember that? Yeah. This is a, is yeah, this right. the recent? My question is right. 
Yeah. Yeah, quite a short one, right? So yeah. That's quite horrific, isn't it? 14 terrorist charges, right? How was he get a suspended sentence when say, for example, one of the young lads who went to prison for just action or being a member of the group get four and a half years. Do you know what I mean? There just seems to be a bit unfair, is it? Because it may, if I dare, a bit of issue there, do you know what I mean? Did he yeah, so, a bit of special yeah. treatment or something? Because I think to be, to be charged with 14 charges is, is pretty, I'd say, dangerous. He need to be put away for it all, do you know what I mean? But to get a suspended <clears> sentence, it just shocked me. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. No, I, I must say now, I don't know the circumstances in detail of that particular case, but my understanding is the argument was that because we've got a fairly privileged young white male, did that play a part in him getting a lesser sentence than maybe someone from a different background or community would have mm. had for similar offences? And I can certainly mm. understand the depth of feeling as far as that's concerned, I mean, putting my police head on, for instance, I recall many's an evening, you know, putting together files for the public prosecution service, hoping to get a charge on somebody for, you know, a criminal offence. Um, and sometimes being a bit disillusioned, shall we say, with the justice system for uh, maybe inconsistencies or for people getting lesser sentences, etc. Um, so I can I can appreciate the frustrations because that's something that was sort of part and parcel of, of, of my job in the police. But really and truly I would I would urge a bit of caution before we before we think before we say too much about those because I, I wasn't in that courtroom. Do you know what I mean? I don't know the details of the case. I don't know mm. what the extenuating circumstances may have been. And there may well have been inconsistencies, but I, I certainly wouldn't have enough details on that specific case to judge whether or not there were, you know. Um, I think it's really important, and, and we try and do this and prevent, actually, whenever we're working with vulnerable individuals. We treat everybody on their own merits. We look at everybody as an individual, and we look at things on a case-by-case -case basis because everybody's journey is different, isn't it? Everybody's life is different, everyone's choices, their grievances, personal, real, perceived, doesn't matter. The, the, the main thing that I always try to keep in the back of my mind is that we're dealing with individuals and every prevent or channel intervention that we participate in is unique and tailored to that particular individual. And I guess to a certain extent, the justice system is the same. Each case needs to be looked at in its own merits, you know. So I get the frustration. I really, really do. But without knowing more about the ins and outs of the case, I personally wouldn't want to um, shout too loudly about the judgment either way. Um, but, but the point that you just made, Sean, regarding that it was a, a white young man, right, maybe that, that has something to play into this. But at the same time, you know, you seem like the exception, the way you're discussing and conversing about this, because there are certain sectors of our society that look at preventing a very different light. Prevent is seen as very toxic, seen as they're out there to get us, 
what what would you say as an individual who has worked within the police as a prevent officer? You know it was coming, mate. Yeah. Right? You know it was yeah. coming. And the thing is, is that no, because this is real. The thing is, this is real. This is the reality of certain communities, right? And I know, I know, I know. Ivan's going to pick pick that particular point up again regarding mm -hmm. the young man who got the fourteen counts, uh, or, or, or he had claimed that fourteen times I have done this or engaged in particular activity. And I agree with you that because it's the it's not there's no real clarity in in the case itself, but. There have been sectors of society, our society, who people have felt that prevent has become much more of a of a way of spying on them than really getting any results. How would you? How, what would you say about that? Being a man who works in this sector, <clears throat> I mean, the, the the honest to goodness truth is that has never been my experience of it. You know, surveillance in particular is something that is in in plain black and white terms not allowed. To prevent, we are not allowed to engage in any covert activity whatsoever. Uh, so let's get that out there straight away. Of course, I'm aware of the history and the controversies around prevent. Um, I would, I would personally say that that's largely because a lot of myths and misconceptions that have been allowed to permeate the narrative. Um, but more recently, I do think that those perceptions are changing for the better. I think that, for instance, the release of prevent statistics on an annual basis is a really good example, actually, of yeah. how open and transparent prevent now is. And those figures have been available from you know 2015 onwards. And even if we look at some of the independent research that's taken place in recent months, so for instance, government commissioned some independent research uh, last year, the results of which were made public a, a couple of weeks ago, which indicated that 58% of the general public actually viewed prevent favorably yes. and only 8% viewed it unfavorably. And that actually supports recent research from, I think, March of this year from Crest Advisory, where they surveyed British Muslims and they find that 80% of British Muslims actually had broad support for prevent. Um, we've seen academic work within education. Uh, there was a great report from... Um, Busher, Thomas and Chowdhury, Coventry University, which identified some really important learning points for prevent practitioners, but it also found that the majority of professionals who work in education saw prevent as a legitimate safeguarding duty. Even this year, uh, the School of Oriental and African Studies in, in London found it's striking yes. that despite anti-prevent campaigns on university campuses, you know, students not suspects and things like that. They found that even despite all that, less than 10% of people who were familiar with prevent would condemn it. And I think even the authors of that report were a little bit <coughs> taken aback by those findings. I mean, those are the statistics for me from, from a personal point of view. Since 2013, since I've been involved with prevent, I've always found there to be a real disconnect between those wider national political debates around prevent and the actual reality of what it's yeah. like on the ground. And my experience is that when people have any sort of practical dealings with prevent, if they're ever involved in a prevent case locally, and whether that's as a parent or as a teacher or a social worker or whatever, in, in the vast majority of cases, they've got a really positive view as to how it's worked. And I've actually, you know, 
I get a, a tough time on social media and stuff like that. But I, I can imagine. But day to day at work, <laughs> no, no problems at all. I mean, because people people see the work that we're doing and and realize that that we're doing our best to, to safeguard people from from harm. And yeah, I do think that it, it's it's interesting having those wider debates. But the reality is is altogether different. That being said, of course, I would always welcome objective criticism Aye. and Aye. you know opportunities for development and a good old debate. You know, I'm more than happy to more than happy to get involved with that. To be fair, thank you, Sean. Go for it. But I, I can vouch for the the projects in Leicester because I've been a part of a couple of them, and you do. You say you do what it says on the tin. Do you know what I mean, Sean? I thought that again. I'm going and a bit following on from Imran's question about trust. There's only two percent. I think ninety-seven referrals from family members. Do you think yeah. that's down to trust or just not knowing, or or is it because of maybe the fear of how the media will portray their child if if they have if they get charged with it because we we seem to talk about the vulnerable a lot but when the set get radicalized or maybe gone to commit an offense or something we then see them as as perpetrators and not victims anymore do you know what I mean yeah it's a, it's a good point uh we do not get enough referrals uh, from family and friends uh, and I think that we could do a lot more, first of all, to raise awareness around prevent in the first instance, because I think some of the findings of those recent surveys that I mentioned indicated that actually the general public don't necessarily know a great deal about prevent, you know? And mm -hmm. so I do think that it's incumbent upon us to increase people's awareness of what we do in the first instance. And when we've got that awareness to improve trust um now anecdotally i would tentatively suggest that the family and friends referral figure is probably higher than it is recorded and why that, is that it's because the majority of referrals to prevent come from the education sector or from police um but to give you a quick example, um, I, th I think it's a recording issue, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. Um, so let's say I receive a phone call from a social worker who wants to make a referral about a vulnerable individual. And this vulnerable individual was brought to their attention by that person's brother or sister. So the social worker takes that information, makes the referral, does that get recorded as a referral from social services mm. or does it get recorded as a referral from the family member who referred it to social services mm. who referred it to prevent or by the same token, the person who phones the police and then the local police Bobby um, rings the prevent team and makes a referral. Is that recorded as a referral from the police or from the person who referred it to the police? Do you know what I'm saying? So it's, I'm not trying to walk over an issue here. I, I am. No. I'm very. No, no, you're right. Say that, that we do need to increase the trust 
of communities and families and friends who are very often in in poor position to be able to spot the warning signs of radicalization and i think we do need to do more to earn their trust etc etc but i also think that um we also need to be a wee bit careful if we rely too much on stats i mean the, the prevent referral figures that, that get released are experimental figures anyway so they're quite you know new and innovative but um but yeah that's just my personal anecdote of you um, and, and and it's very it's very insightful, especially someone who's in the field itself. And the only thing is, is that like we've just we've had uh, uh, some family members uh, of individuals who have uh, been found to be part of like the Islamist extremism extremist uh, background, or from the far right. Uh, in fact, we've got two mums on here uh, on the podcast, and it, it's been very very powerful to get their stories. And these both ladies, in fact, they had worked very closely with channel the channel process they worked very closely with prevent uh, one of them had a very difficult time mm -hmm. right uh, she had she had mentioned that i had stated to my local authority or local uh, channel process or you know, who um, uh, our prevent officers uh, that I, I was worried about my son uh, she had stated certain things but they didn't see it as serious they didn't see it as something which is as, as important and it went from one thing to another. The next time, he was found to be part of a a, uh, a prescribed organization, and he's been convicted. Mm -hmm. You understand? So there, there is. There, I agree with you that there, there are some issues on though regarding those individuals who really work in this sector. You know, I've done this. I've done this for a number of years, and Ivan has himself as well. And from your from your story and from your background, this is why I wanted to start. Uh, this my conversation with yourself and Quincy it came up from your accent sir all right that I wanted to start from that because for me as a person who is from a particular community particular sector who works in a particular area I'm a qualified youth worker with young people myself you understand so I understand to a certain extent how, why people why young people do certain things and why they get radicalized and what happens but it's also the the affiliation and associate and that sometimes the lack of real engagement with them people or they feel stigmatized Right, or they're not they are not processed correctly when they get referred, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. So th there is that whole side which has always been a problem. I know we do trainings, you know, I know Ivan, Ivan and Irfan and etc. One of our uh, you know founders of the organization and Dave Allport as well, founders of the organization who have worked very hard in the last five, six, seven, eight years, and some many years before that to at least rectify that. But sadly, we keep messing up. Do you know what I mean? We keep messing yeah. up. And if you really want trust, if you really want and you want to build the trust of the people and the community, then do you remember we have long memories? As a community, we have long memories. We remember what the bad happens to us, right? This is one of the problems we had around prevent because it started with a knee-jerk reaction, 2003, right? It was, it was jerked into place. The strategy came into place. Do you understand? Then it took another 12 years, approximately, not 12 years, about eight, nine, 10 years, approximately, for them to even include the likes of the far right. And yeah. now, and, and now I know there's a question that my mate Ivan has as well regarding the inclusivity of. No, I was going to defend Sean, actually. <laughs> I kind of defend Sean. But back in, back in the day when Prevent started, 
the trouble is people like Chowdhury, radical people, Alan Eugene, and all them sort of groups, you know what I mean? They weren't radicalising people like me. Oh, actually, in the end, Chowdhury did radicalise me, but you know what I mean? That's I think that's why the set was from the Islamist side. There wasn't a real far-right reaction then. The far-right started growing because it was a reactionary. The far-right is always a reactionary, do you know what I mean? They never sort of instigated, but now it's got to that point now where people have been set online for so long this year and they're getting a worldview from America or they're getting things twisted. We've got a lot of work coming, and I think sadly, although these figures are pretty pretty bad, the next lot of figures are going to be worse because it will have that lockdown period in. Yeah, I think... It's going to be really interesting when the stats are released next year and compare them to 2020 because we know that certainly referrals from education, for instance, will have plummeted because students weren't attending school in large numbers for a significant part of the year. Yet at the same time, it's it's quite reasonable to suggest that the risks this year have probably been higher because of people's exposure to you know more online radicalization and because vulnerable people maybe weren't getting the same standard of professional service from you know safeguarding departments and professionals that they would have had under you know pre-covid situations so i do think a comparison next year will be very interesting i do think though that sometimes uh, speaking to your earlier point that Prevent doesn't always get the credit it deserves for the way that it has managed to evolve over time and respond to emerging threats and risks. So in the early days of implementation, yeah, I absolutely get it. It was perceived at the time that the main risks were from international terrorism and from Al-Qaeda. And you could argue that at that time there was a disproportionate focus on Muslim communities, partly because when Prevent was, you know, uh, first being implemented, it was done so through a broad sweep of community consultations. And the fact that it was largely police-led in those days meant that, I guess it was perceived as being more secretive than it was because the police wouldn't ordinarily, you know, shout about their, their latest, you know, their latest policies, et cetera, et cetera. But as, as threats evolved, so too did prevent, and although, by 2011, it formally acknowledged that it deals with all forms of extremism, in particular right-wing extremism. The reality is that practitioners in, in the years before that had already been taken on those cases, hence the change. And even if we bring that even more up to date with, with the present situation, one of the striking trends that we've seen in the last couple of sets of prevent stats has been a rise in referrals with a mixed or an unclear or an unstable ideology. Right. And, and before they were formally acknowledged as being part of the, the, the types of issues that we deal with and prevent, you'll find that practitioners in a lot of regions had already been taking those sorts of cases on. And so it does evolve and it does respond the threats and risks and so prevent now in 2020 is a million miles from what prevent in its early days looked like and sometimes i think we still suffer 
the stigma that was hatched during those early days and the whole toxic brand mm. stuff, you know, when the reality... That's and, I, and I think that's exactly Sean to cut you off. I was saying that that's exactly what has it has left a very bitter taste. Mm. And as some people, some you know, practitioner in the field, they did say maybe we need to change the name, maybe we need to call it something yeah. else, maybe the branding needs to be done. No, this is I'm just throwing yeah. it out. Yeah, yeah. But but I, I get it. I get it fully. Yeah. I think the acknowledgement. Of, yeah, go for it. Go for it. Sean. I mean, I would I'd, I'd throw it out there. I mean, to yourselves and to anybody who's watching, what 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 will we do instead? Do you know what I mean? If we change the name, is that just going to be cosmetic? Are the people who are anti-prevent not just going to see right through that and, and, and still criticise us for doing the same thing? I would suggest that if we were to take a, a blank piece of paper and, and try to come up with a countering violent extremism strategy, um, what we would actually come up with is something pretty darn close to what we already have, you know? Something that's immersed in safeguarding, where the support relies on the consent of the individuals involved with a multi-agency approach where social services and um, uh, uh, prisons and probation and police and health and education and all of these different agencies have an equal say in what happens at channel panels. I mean, I think I think we're a fairly um, well-evolved and mature strategy now, to be perfectly honest. And, and uh, that's really, and I think that's really, really, it builds our confidence yeah. in the process. And I think that's really good to hear from yourself, Sean, someone who is a coordinator within this particular sector, particular area. I've, we have, there's a very good friend of ours who is a regular uh, viewer of, of the podcast, a listener of the podcast. Um, she's put a, a question to you and he goes, what exactly is categorized as unclear ideology? Good question. So, <clears throat> it's it's formally called uh, mixed, unclear, or unstable, and what that means is it, it's cases where uh, a political ideology or an affiliation with a particular group isn't very clear, uh, yet the individual concerned may still aspire to mass violence or be fascinated with with mass violence. Uh, the classic example of an unclear ideology would be someone who is inspired by US-style school shootings, for instance. Right. And potentially plan a similar attack in a school or college setting in the UK. And before this category was formally recognised uh, by Prevent, first of all, we clumsily referred to these cases colloquially as Columbine inspired because so many of these young individuals to this day still take inspiration from school shootings like Columbine and the whole myths that, that continue to surround it. Um, and also there was a, a, a very real fear that these individuals could easily slip through the net and that no agency would support them because if it's an individual who hasn't committed a crime then who's going to look at them? If, if it's an individual who doesn't have a particular um, uh, mental health issue that isn't going to get looked at by a particular agency, for instance, basically if you don't tick any of the boxes that would fall into the normal realms of professional support that vulnerable people would receive, then who, who can support these individuals? And I think that because a lot of the interventions that we provide through Prevent are bespoke and tailored to the individuals concerned. We can provide mentoring, we can provide educational support, 
assistance with housing, uh, career opportunities, anger management, you name it. Wow. Well, it would be, I think, pretty callous of us if we didn't use that expertise to help other people when we could. So mixed on clear ideology is when someone doesn't have a political ideology. So what would you what what would you say? Uh, th thank you for that. Um, what would you say, Sean, regarding far left ideology? Well, that's um, that's an interesting one. We don't tend to get a lot of far left referrals. I recall one that I dealt with historically that was related to animal rights activism. But in general terms, there is the potential for it to meet the threshold for prevent, but we don't we don't see a lot of referrals. So if you think of, for instance, nonviolent protest movements like Extinction Rebellion or Black Lives Matter, for that instance, they would not meet the threshold for prevent. Um, they would not be classed as extremist. Um, not unless there was an aspiration towards violence or the glorification of violence or the incitement of violence would we get involved. Um, so in my personal experience, um, dealing with far left related cases has been rare, but not beyond the realms of possibility. See, this is what the reason why I'm putting that there because I know myself and Ivan we 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 tend to have a bit of a heads-on this particular issue because one of the key things that has been the inclusivity of the far right, mm. far right extremists, and you have you know street protesters and etc. with EDL and all of that. What was it? What existed? And then, uh, like you said, it prevents says has evolved over time, has become more inclusive, uh, uh, unclear ideologies to Islamism to whatever it is or that it includes. And this is one area which I know from the far right, they make a massive you know, issue of. If you say, we are violent, what about the likes of some of the far, far left? Are you just letting them get away with it for whatever activities? Because there have been, there have been, of course, counter uh, you know, reactions to the likes of EDL and the likes of you know, other organizations like this. Is the police and is people in authority not seeing them as a threat? Just because they may hold the same views as them, or may see may see them as more uh, mainstream, would you say? Yeah, I mean, I guess it complicates matters if, from a, a moral point of view, you may have some sympathy with the ultimate cause of the group concerned. I get how that can add areas of grey into the mix, but the, the bottom line is, if someone is seeking to achieve a political aim through the use of violence, then that is what would meet the threshold for uh, intervention, really. Um, and that would be regardless of whatever type of extremism it is. So for instance, me personally, I would have a ton of sympathy for the animal rights movement. Do you know what I mean? My wife and my eldest daughter are vegetarian. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a, it's a mission every year trying to buy non-leather school shoes for my nine-year-old, you know? Um, <laughs> And so whilst I very much sympathise with those morals, there's a line really that, that can't be crossed for me personally. And that line is, I wouldn't, I wouldn't commit a criminal act in order to promote that uh, moral worldview. And I so what would you... Violence. No, I agree. But what would you say regarding the likes of Antifa, for example, an organisation like that, who 
does sometimes use some very extreme measures. And again, it would be looking at it on a case-by-case -case basis. And if an individual is referred to us with a connection to Antifa, there would obviously be a risk assessment and uh, there'd be an assessment as to whether or not there's a propensity towards violence there. And it may well be appropriate for the individual to be afforded some kind of uh, voluntary support. Because at the end of the day, when we're talking about prevent and channel support, we're talking about, they used to, they used to say the non-criminal space. Do you know what I mean? We call we call it we call it non we tend to call it uh, the non-violent or like you said the non-criminal. But the yeah, problem is within within a definition, it's not like that. You know that, don't you? You're, you're 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 getting involved with people before they reach that point of going down a criminal justice route. At the end of the day, so yeah, if it, if it is appropriate, I mean, it, it it's a cliche really, but prevent deals with all forms of extremism. And the most common types that we see by far and away would be Islamist inspired violent extremism and right wing extremism with this rising trend of mixed and unclear ideologies. Yes. But I've in my prevent career dealt with a number of Irish related cases, believe it or not, which uh, in a strange kind of way I've I've enjoyed maybe a wee bit homesick, but uh, it, every case will be looked at on its own merits is probably you know, sure. god bless you for that i i've uh sean i think you know it's really nice hearing that today's prevent teams are much more vigilant much more aware much more careful in just reacting knee-jerk reactions right because i think initially when all of this started it, it did become a problem major problem Right, because like you said, the whole idea of this was to create a safe environment and prevent, like you said, it was about uh, the, 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 the pre-criminal, right? Mm -hmm. There's both any criminality takes place. But the stigmatization around this, families feeling that their kids are going to be criminalized, right? We have a number of young people who've been, uh, who've gone, who are going through the court system, who are in, in prisons at this moment in time, who have been convicted uh, through this particular process. And sadly, and I'm going to say this, and I think this is something that needs to put to yourself, sir, that where is the real help for the families in this? Because we have a tendency to, you know, package up someone or wrap up someone and say, you are this and you are that, stick them into the prison. They get what they get. But what about the families? Is there any type of support within the work that you do, sir? Yeah, or family members. It's a really good question. I mean, when it gets to the stage where someone is uh, prosecuted for a criminal or indeed even a terrorist offence, well, then it's out. It's out of the world of prevent and into the pursue strand of counterterrorism. But I get the point that you that you're making, and uh, I do think that we should never stop trying to learn or develop, I mean, whenever I speak to families that are affected by extremism, uh, one of the questions I always try to make a point of asking mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, is how did the authorities treat you? And how did you feel the process went? And based upon your experience, good or bad, 
sometimes bad. What would you say to another family going through the same sort of thing? Or what would you say to the police service or to the prevent team as to how they can avoid making the mistakes of the past, if you like? So I I don't have a definitive answer really uh, for the question, except to say that we, we, we can to- do more. We can do more. Let, let me let me put let me put words into your mouth. We can do more because that is one one area that we have not looked at. You know, one of the main areas that we've not really t- taken a lot of attention towards and reflected. We, get, we can talk about from a ministerial position. We can talk about, you know, different regions and etc. We, we have an opportunity as me and you education. We work up and down the country with different police, uh, 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 you know, platoons. And we talk we talk about different communities. We talk about different councils and etc. One of the biggest problems that we've had is when we ask this question, okay, fine, what about families? Mm-hmm. What about those now who are still in the community, who are still stigmatized, who are still seen? Oh, it's your child that's gone into prison. It's your child uh, who got radicalized. It's your child. Well, one minute, they are victims in this. Yeah. And we and we spoke about it earlier on, didn't we, when we talked about the need to raise that awareness and build that trust uh, because of the referral rates amongst you know families and friends, for instance. So... There is, there's obviously going to be work to do, um, and there, there always will be because, you know, unfortunately, no strategy that we put in place is ever going to be 100% effective in every single area and be able to prevent every single individual from going down a dark path. Um, so we do what we can with the tools that we're given, and we and we try to develop and improve and and evolve as we as we go on. So hopefully, you know. I don't want to, you know, I could walk on about the areas for development that I think that we should really focus on, but it might it might be better for me to leave that to the independent. Hey, I love you. Okay, that's good, man. Here, here's, one, here's one point I would make, I think, if I, can be, if I can be brutally honest for a while. We oftentimes hear a lot of criticisms around prevent, uh, and I think some of those criticisms are oftentimes made in bad faith, and they're based on myths and misconceptions. I think if you really want to be a, a, an objective but constructive critic of Prevent, Aye. then by all means, feed into the independent review. And let's talk about things like how we support families. Let's talk about consistency of delivery or training standards or any number of things that could always be tweaked or improved, you know. Um, and let's focus on the things that we can do and should do better yes. rather than get bogged down in arguments over prevent as a toxic brand based on what it did in 2003 2004 you know thank you no 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 and 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 thank you and i think that is the way to look at it we have come a long way no doubt about that and thank god we have right and i agree with you i have seen the evolutionary process through prevent i've seen people who have been gone through the whole channel process how they've been treated and what has happened there are many many positive uh, very positive you know stories and i think they need to come out People need to know about them, and and hope. And like you said, if there is no, and if you're gonna give me give me something else in the system that is doing the same job, it's not. We don't have yeah. anything else. Yeah. And and this is the best thing we have. And thank God we have it, because if we and didn't, I, yeah. And I would go so far as to say that internationally as well, I don't think there's many CVE programs that come close to what we do in Prevent. They I don't. Think, no. I, I think agree. I think it's probably better regarded 
by international colleagues than it is within the UK. And sadly, but that's why it's true to an extent. You're right. And but like I said, it has as communities, as different sectors of society, like you said, we have we are still looking through that same lens, uh, which we looked through when we were dealing with it in 2003, 2004, 5, whatever it was mm. at that particular time. And I agree with you. We have to move on. And, we are, and, and there's many positives that you have given, some are, especially by talking to someone like yourself, someone who's in this sector. And who's looking at it from a very different position? It's very individualist, individual-based. It's more about the individual's needs and requirements. If there's mental health issues, if there's underlying other problems for social, personal issues, you will support them, help them. And I agree with you. And I think that that's very, very crucial that people realize. Prevent is not only uh, you know someone uh, putting someone's name forward and saying, "Oh, this guy's this and this guy's that," and that's how you pick them and throw them in. It's not like that. Yeah. It's a process, and it's about before. Uh, 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 the criminal or the criminality label is, you know, slammed onto the person. Yeah. I know Ivan has a few things to say, um, uh, some questions for you, Sean. I did, uh, but Sean's answered them both already. But the one <laughs> thing I was going to say is that the, the best thing that's come out of 2020 recently is the new website, Act Early. We did kind of promote it a bit last week. That's more of a place where you can get there's more more support there than just venting there. Do you know what I mean? Find other organizations that can help. I think that will be an important way to build up trust because it's more open. Do you know what I mean? It's, it goes into a bit more detail. And the, I think the case studies on there are good as well. It might just empower some people to use it more. Do you know what I mean? But that yeah. is the positive. And it, it, Act early, it is a really it is a really good website. And one of the things that I like about it in particular, like you say, is that focused on case studies because historically, you know, positive case studies of prevent were quite hard to find. Now that's not because they didn't happen. There were loads of them. There were loads of great case studies. They just weren't made public for various reasons. We're dealing with confidential safeguarding issues and you need the consent of the people involved, for instance. Likewise, there was never really a great media appetite to promote the positive case studies as opposed Ty to the typical mate, typical <laughs> and, and of course the negative ones tended to be exaggerated or in some cases largely made up to be perfectly honest but i think we now do have a good uh, a good number of really positive case studies anonymized of course that, that we can draw on that can show people what the reality of prevent looks like i mean it is it has been frustrating historically to take a barrage of criticism when you know in your heart of hearts that prevent has changed people's lives for the better. Uh, when individuals have said to you that, you know, prevent has saved their life. Uh, someone told me that uh, by this time last year. Um, I spoke to another former referral uh, back in March. It was one of my first prevent referrals actually. Um, and he told me that he felt that uh, if it wasn't for prevent, he'd have been in prison. Um, so why I know hand on heart that we've made a really positive difference in a lot of people's lives. And I'm only glad now that websites like Act Early are getting those case studies out and about to the wider public who may not have previously been aware of them. So, yeah, I'd urge people to, to take a look at that because, again, as we said earlier on, you know, 
families and friends uh, are very often the first people to spot the warning signs and they need somewhere where they can go for specialist advice and support and a safe space to, to share those concerns. And so that website would, should hopefully be a good uh, first port of call for, for people who find themselves in that situation. Are you also keeping in mind, you know, cultural, religious sensitivities? Do you have individuals who uh, are around, I know, with uh, with ActEarly.uk, um, getting some support for people who are, because we do have people who are radicalized through Islamism, for example. But we also have um, some extreme organizations within the Sikh community. We have some organizations, especially with this whole thing within India, some very extreme organizations within the, within the Hindu community and etc. And of course, you might, maybe not that many, thank God, but you must get referrals. So when we talk about support for ethnic and religious requirements or the sensitivities, is there anything like that in this whole process? Oh yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, that we're very lucky in that respect. It in prevent in that we've got, you know, partners that we work with from a range of backgrounds with specialisms in different areas. You know, no practitioner or coordinator can can know everything about about every type of ideology. <laughs> uh, but we know who to ask. You know, and so particularly when it comes to things like mentoring channel cases, we can draw upon people from a wide range of backgrounds, whether they're, you know, former extremists themselves from different sides of the aisle or whether they've worked in gangs or behavioral psychology or, or religious scholars, for instance. I mean, I remember a case I had, uh, when was it? Like 2015 or so young man. He was a recent convert to Islam who had a pretty wretched upbringing, really, never had much of a chance in life for a variety of reasons, and he'd been involved in drugs and gangs, etc. Um, anyway, ultimately, he was he was converted to Islam by someone who he looked up to, and within a matter of weeks, he firmly believed that it was his Islamic duty to travel to Syria. Right. Um, and when he got there, he said that Allah would tell him what to do, um, and he really bought into all of those kind of apocalyptic propaganda videos that, that Daesh or, or ISIS were putting out at that particular time. Anyway, he he was referred to prevent. I remember speaking to him. He's a, this is where we talk about humanizing people. He was a really lovely fella. He was softly spoken. He was polite. He was mild mannered. We could have a really good conversation, and he was very open and very honest. Um, anyway, the mentor that we put in place with him was an imam, and we very quickly established that this poor lad had next to no religious knowledge right. whatsoever beyond the propaganda that was getting pumped out to him. Right. This was a young man who had never set foot inside a mosque partly because he didn't know what to do you know he didn't know how to pray he would have felt uncomfortable would have felt like a place didn't know anybody there all that kind of stuff he had a very limited knowledge of faith full stop mm. and so through religious discussions with the imam mm. Not only did he very quickly come to realize that traveling to Syria was not the way forward, but he also began to have a much more wholesome and well-rounded view of faith in general that began to have a more 
positive effect Brilliant. on his day-to-day life. So it wasn't a case of Prevent coming in and saying, oh, he's converted to Islam and that's the problem. It was, how can how can we support you in a way that suits you best and who is the best person to take you on that journey? And luckily in this case, there's a, or the, the mentor is amazing, really well. And, and I think I think that prime example, and I know that's one of hundreds probably. Oh, yeah. yeah, right? yeah, yeah. That's a similar type of experience. But by catering for that individual's need and requirement, because a lot of what people don't usually realize, especially if, if they don't have a faith or a religion which they follow or they adhere to, is they don't see it as significant. But for a person who does adhere to that, it's a very significant part of the identity and their belonging. Yeah. And for the likes of yourselves and people, individuals in your sector, within the prevent sector, if, if they are also acknowledging that fully and completely, brilliant. And yeah. I think, and, and you're right, and 99%, if not nearly 100%, of all of these characters, individuals who come through, who are radicalized or who go through a very extreme, you know, change within themselves, uh, there is a lack of genuine religious theological understanding. Yeah. And that's very true. Yeah. And again, this, this, I think perhaps my upbringing back home has helped me out in this regard because I've got, I don't know whether it's a naive assumption that if someone is genuinely religious, then they're not going to be violent. I don't think that's naive. That, that, is, you know, that is the foundation of all. Sadly, we claim that uh, you know, because of religion, there has been greater wars and deaths. Whereas we can make a we can make a, make a very statistical analysis of this last century and find something completely different to that. Yeah, Even non-religious wars and you know warfare. It, it, it used to frustrate me when when Northern Ireland was simplified to being a religious conflict when there were so many you know social and cultural issues at play as well. And you know, and it's land. It's the same issue we have in Palestine. Yeah, same issue in Palestine. We t- we plot. We tend to plot people on religious lines, right? With religious slogans and uh, and religious banners. The truth of the matter is, it's about land. Mm. It's about land resources. That's all it's about. And sadly, sadly, certain religions and faith. Because what is a religion? Religion is like a tool. What people use to benefit spiritually or to use for wrong and false things. It's a very easy way. Someone said beautifully goes. God doesn't speak for himself. God's not going to say, I, I usually say this when I do training, I go, thunder and lightning, how dare you? I didn't say that. God doesn't say that, does he? Mm. But it's, it's the mullahs, it's the scholars, or it's the so-called whoever these extreme individuals may, who speak for God. Mm-hmm. So in reality, we hear God in the voice and the mentality of the individual who's radicalizing or who's preaching. And that's the problem. Mm. And I think within your sector, if this is happening, by clarifying one minute, Islam itself is not an issue. Christianity in itself is not an issue. Hinduism, Sikhism is not an issue within itself. Right? In itself, these are faiths which take people to peace, harmony, and 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 yeah. and, 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 and this sense of you know uh, harmony between humanity, not to hurt or uh, you know take uh, to take people's lives. And I agree with you. You're not naive, sir. I agree with you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think purely we look at the numbers. If there was a problem with Islam, then we'd be in trouble, wouldn't we? Because then there'd be billions of terrorists the world over, and there's just not. There'll so, be no Muslim. There'll be non-Muslim. There will be no non-Muslims living, mate. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, 
Yeah. Come on, let's get. I don't want to be. I don't want to say a flippant comment, but of course I'm being sarcastic here and saying, "What the hell?" Do you know mm. what I'm saying? And you're right. If that was true of that, then this is the problem. Yeah. Right. But that, that's very, very true. Ivan, if there's anything else that you want to share with uh, Sean. Yeah, I just thought of a quick one, actually. This year was the first rise in Islamist referral, Sean. If I remember right, if I read that rightly. The first Do you think that increase will continue to grow? They're the first rise in the Islamist referrals for a couple of years, I think, weren't it? I'll need, to, I'll need to double check. I'll take your word for that. Yeah, but um, my understanding was... Yes. Yeah, well, all, I was gonna say, all I was going to say was, do you think that will increase with the next figures due to what's happened in France recently? Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting question. I do think that uh, it's very common when attacks take place in uh, in other countries, France and Austria most recently being cases in point, that we do sometimes see the consequences of that play out at a local level. Um, you know, I can go back again. One of my early prevent cases was a, a young man who was inspired by the Anders Breivik attack in yes. in Norway. Um, and you sort of think to yourself, how how can events in Norway have such localized consequences in the uk but they can do you know similarly in leicester we've got a thriving vibrant somali community and so whenever there are issues in somalia that never tend to make the headlines over here you know i think of a attacks in mogadishu in recent months for instance that's right and our local communities feel the weight of feel the weight of those even though they're not necessarily known by the wider public. And then bringing it more up to date, of course, with, with the horrific incidents in, in France and Austria. Well, I think we've seen how that's played out in the UK with our terror threat being raised, for instance, to mm -hmm. severe, uh, meaning that an attack is highly likely. And, and we've seen it in, in community sentiment as well, you know. Um, so the figures next year will make interesting reading um my personal experience of of the year has been that although we have had less referrals from the education sector we have still had a fairly consistent number coming through many of them quite high risk but locally we've seen a real mix i mean a real mix um of extreme right wing islamist mixed on clear with a few other curveballs thrown in there as well um so it'll be interesting to see how how those trajectories continue i mean the right wing referrals have been steadily rising yes for a number of years um so yeah, hard to predict what the national figures will look like, but that's certainly been my my local experience. That's for sure. In in the world that we live in, um, you know, Sean and Ivan, both of you, we we live in the world of hope. Mm. You know, we're not we're not pessimists, pessimistic individual. We are very optimistic, even though sometimes we live in darkness. And especially, Sean, I know in your world, 
where you're dealing with people who become radicalized or who get referred for that by stating something, mentioning something. Um, I'm, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you a few moments, a few minutes to uh, say your last, last thoughts today, because, uh, and I hope that we can, we can build on what we have talked about today as well in the future, Sean, um, because it's, it's been really enlightening for me. I'm going to be very blunt with you. Uh, I work in a particular sector. I understand certain elements and aspects of the, the stress and strains of your role mm. fully and completely. I get it. And uh, and I really appreciate what you've shared today, Sean. And I think uh, for someone who works in, as a, who has worked as a front officer and who was a coordinator in, in Leicestershire at this moment in time and who does some amazing work around this, for, to, for it to come out of your mouth to share with the community and hopefully others will far and wide will listen to this, that one minute, there are genuine human beings who see even these extremist characters as human beings. And today, Sean, for someone like yourself to come forward and to share that has given me on a personal level, at least, some confidence that regardless that it is turmoil, there is destruction, there is hate, but there are genuine people who want to create genuine positive change. So I just want to say for myself, thank you, mate. God bless you. I mean, your family and everyone stay safe. I'm going to ask Ivan to say something and then we're going to come to you and you, you, you will have the floor. Oh, okay. <laughs> right, let me think. Now, just thanks for coming on, Sean. Do you know what I mean? I know I dropped it on you late, but uh, yeah, I think I'll leave it to you, that little positive spin now to give, to give our listeners, viewers, whatever you want to call them, that little bit of hope that I think we all need. Well, the first thing i got to say straight away is that, uh, it's well past my bedtime, so I may not come out with the, most, uh, with the most coherent and inspiring message of hope, but I'll give it a shot. Um, I guess what I'd like to say is that, uh, so ultimately, the, the, I guess the world's a pretty complicated place, you know, and when we're talking about prevent, we're obviously talking about a strategy that comes with a history of controversy and baggage. But at the end of the day, we're talking about safeguarding and managing risk. And if you speak to any professional, they'll tell you that managing risk and dealing with individuals who are potentially exposed to significant harm, it's, it, it's not easy. Uh, but like with any form of safeguarding, it's always better to share that risk uh, because the consequences of not doing so could be catastrophic. So from my point of view, even when we get criticized for a small number of referrals, making it through to the channel process, you know, that's the common one that gets thrown at us. I would much rather receive referrals where there is no concern than miss someone who actually really needs support and when you look at the prevent statistics, particularly in the context of broader safeguarding, out of the 6,000 odd referrals that were made according to those recent stats, about 27% uh, of them, there was no further action required. Brilliant. But if you compare that with broader safeguarding, so domestic abuse, sexual abuse, et cetera, et cetera, it's about 37% no further action required. 
So prevent is actually pretty consistent with, with broader safeguarding. In fact, actually, I'm going to go off on one now that you've got me started, but in an average year, in an average year, you have over 650,000 children referred for safeguarding concerns. Wow. About 500,000 adults. So we're talking about a million, a million safeguarding referrals in the UK each year. And in that single year of prevent stats, we had 6,200 odd referrals. That's significantly less than 1% of all of the people who get referred for wider safeguarding. That's right. Why is it we always have these complex and detailed discussions around prevent, but not about these other elements of safeguarding too? Bada bing, exactly. <laughs> so I do think that sometimes prevent gets a disproportionate amount of intel yeah uh, discussion and, and and negativity even within the very you know, small sphere of counter-terrorism we account for about two percent of the budget of counter-terrorism so in the grand scheme of things it's a relatively it's a relatively cheap strategy as well prevent costs between 40 and 50 million pounds a year uh when you think about 2017 the five terrorist attacks that we suffered that year caused about three billion pounds worth of damage to the uk wow. So if our prevention strategy costs an absolute fraction of that, then, you know, I think the output, what people are getting in terms of the people that have been supported through Prevent, provide exceptional value for money. I think since since 2015, uh, over 2,000 people have successfully received channel support. Wow. Um, I've, I can't speculate as to what would have happened if those individuals hadn't received support. But I'm pretty certain whether terrorist attacks have been prevented as a result of those interventions. Just as importantly, it's made a really positive difference in the lives of those people, 2,300 people who have received positive channel support. I mean, prevent... Prevent does really good work, I have to say. I've seen it change people's lives. And I guess if I could leave you with a message of, of hope, it's that there's, and, and Ivan can tell you, like there is a broad network of really dedicated people who work in Prevent all over the country, the vast majority of whom are never in the public eye and who don't prance about on social media like I do. Do you know what I mean? Um, we have a serious number of civil society organizations who work with us to deliver prevent projects, to raise awareness, to build resilience against radicalization. And these people are working flat out, flat out, despite all of the stuff that gets flung our way. They're working flat out to keep people safe at the end of the day. Um, and we don't always get it right. And we'll hold our hands up when we don't. And we know that we can improve. But. We're doing our best, and we know? are. And I think, yeah. I think to to exactly on that point, yeah. we are trying our best. And as human beings, we have our flaws. There's no doubt about that. But to have platforms where we are ready to talk, we're ready to discuss, we're ready to at least put this forward for to educate people, to inform people, and to give them a more a broader understanding. Let's keep this up, guys. And it's been an awesome opportunity to have a discussion and conversation. Thank you very much, Sean, Ivan. Big up yeah. to you. And everybody, look after yourself. 
This was Creating the Conversation podcast. Hope to see you guys next week. Signing out. God bless.